0: You can be driving along, you can be doing 100, 130 miles per hour and then suddenly you're just taking off over the sand dunes or, you know, there's hedge or little bushes or something that you've just got to avoid or a rock because it's not like a rally stage where everybody follows each other It's a bit more like orienteering where you've got point A and point B and you've got to get there faster than everybody else
1: that's Alan McNish. He's a man who spent 39 years in motorsport and has a lot of stories to tell. I'm Alex Goy, and this is Audi Behind the Rings. Alain has had an illustrious career. He started out as every baby petrolhead does, beginning his career in karting. That was in the early 80s, and then he got himself a Formula 1 drive in 2002, then went on to win the 24 Hours of Le Mans in 1998 and 2008. Then, driving at Le Mans again in 2011, this happened. Oh my God, the wheels come over the wall! That is the Dunlop Curves, contact between the Audis and the Ferrari, and that's McNish. Oh, he didn't go over the wall. Wow, that is a big one. Remarkably, Alan got out of his near-disintegrated car pretty much unscathed and went on to win Le Mans again in 2013. Now team principal of the Audi Sport Abt Schaeffler Formula E team, his personal career moved from cockpit to pit lane and came at a moment when motorsport was changing too. No longer defined by purpose-built circuits and the raucous riving of engines, racing went electric. Audi's always chosen to enter categories that allow technologies to transfer from race to road. Everything Audi does to secure a win ends up, in some form, in your motor. So what does Alan McNish reckon the future of electric racing is going to look like? I, I want to talk about your your time in motorsport so this is your 39th year uh in in motorsport <laughs> and during that time you know there's there's Thanks, been Alex. a lot of advancement. thank you very much <laughs> <laughs> sorry this is th- th- this is your third year in motorsport you've done so much in such little time <laughs> <laughs> But during your time in in motorsport, we've gone from petrol being the dominant fuel, uh, ICE being the dominant powertrain, and now all of a sudden the focus is very much on electrification. But rather than rather than watching that happen, like you know me from my sofa on a Saturday afternoon or at three in the morning uh, at the South. You've been you've been living it. So, what what's that change been like? Like, how's how's it felt from your perspective?
0: It's quite funny because you know what it's like in motorsport when you're at the cutting edge of whatever it is—a new tire or a new internal combustion engine or something that we're looking to try to improve. Uh, you don't realise how important it is at the time until you look back. And it's only when you look back you realise that point was a real game changer. You know, you're right, 39 years in motorsport, I've seen quite a lot of things, but for the majority of my career, it's always been related to the same fuel source, which was petrol, like everybody else, because for years everybody just used that. And we went to uh, Sebring in 2006 with uh, the diesel, which was the first time that anybody had taken a fully developed racing engine to an international race and one that was not petrol. And the thing that I realised then was, yeah, this was a game changer. But what I did not realise was the pace of technology change. And within 11 years, we would have gone from that to having a hybrid system. And that hybrid system would have 50% of electric power and 50% of internal combustion power. And then to fully electric from there. And, as well, that I would have gone from being a racing driver to a team principal in one of those fully electric championships. So the whole swing of things has been so quick, much quicker than I could ever have imagined. And also, it's been cool to be on the front edge of that, to see it happening live, to see the sort of groundbreaking things that we're doing on track, and also just to know that you're part of developing for the future.
1: Yeah, so l- looking back and thinking oh hang on that all happened rather quickly this is excellent ma- ma- magic occurred <laughs> when you're in that moment when those changes start happening so you get that first diesel engine and then you do the then you move to hybrid when you're there is it sudden or is it planned for really really far in advance and then all of this or like how how does that work when you're actually on the ground
0: well planning is very much in advance and so if i take the normal sort of cycle you're looking sort of two, three years down the line of where you're going to want to get to. However, on the ground, as you know, uh, with technology, with regulations, with different things that sort of come up, the way that you do it is a little bit day by day by learning especially when it is absolutely new stuff and so in that respect when you talk about the hybrid I remember going uh, to our first tests with us it was a flywheel system that stored the energy so when you braked or lifted off at the end of the straights it recuperated energy from the front wheels that normally be dissipated in heat and noise and it went into a, a spinning disc system called a flywheel that sat next to my left hip and that thing was spinning at like 45,000 revs per minute you know and uh, you could hear it when you lifted off you could go as you were actually putting energy back in that's over the noise of the engine behind you and then when you accelerated out to the corner you could hear it giving that energy to the front wheels to give your quattro system and four wheel drive and so you'd go as it dissipated the energy. It was an incredible thing for your mind suddenly to hear this sitting next to your left hip. But then you started to use it and you used it as a tool for knowing how you were actually recuperating energy. So it wasn't just the car doing it audibly you were listening to this and it was giving you feedback as a driver so there was lots of things through the the process that we were finding out along the way even although the hybrid system the way we were going to do it was planned so far in advance the utilization of it was kind of on the ground
1: that's very smart so you you use the use the flywheel kind of like to put it into into uh, mere mortal terms, not super hardcore race driver terms, uh, kind of like when a learner figures out that when the revs get super loud and super noisy, you need to change gear. That that kind of feedback.
0: Kind of, yes. Um, you were basically, it was an extra sense and an extra feedback you were getting as a racing driver to be able to maximise the performance of you and the
1: car. Well, if we're we're talking about working with new systems and and getting used to things, I do want to come back to to Le Mans. Mm. But uh, right now, you're having some serious success as uh, team principal of uh, Audi Sport's Formula E team. What I'd I'd like to know from you, really, is having had such a big background in in ICE and and racing and and all that, what excited you about Formula E? Did you think, oh, this looks quite jazzy, I think I'll give it a go? Or did you fancy a different challenge? Or what got you there? Do you want to know the truth? Yeah.
0: I wasn't sure Formula E was actually going to be the thing. Um, At the beginning, Lucas Degrassi, who is one of our drivers, Lucas was... uh, involved with it in the testing phase and he kept coming back telling us about this electric racing championship that's starting and I think yeah yeah and I'd seen like you Alex when you've been around you see things starting and maybe not all of them actually come into fruition so I suppose I was a little bit uh, prejudgmental in a way um, which I think a lot of people were in reality and I went to the first race in Monaco and uh, I sat in the grandstands didn't go near the pits at all sat with my wife and two children in the grandstands and it was to understand what it was like from the fan perspective because I was very interested in thinking about, you know, what is this going to be like? Because it's not just about the people in the paddock and the teams and the drivers and the manufacturers. It's about everybody else, you know, looking towards us. And so, therefore, um, I sat there and I wasn't 100% convinced at the beginning, very honestly. The racing was good and through season... Three when I uh, went to see all of the races, I actually bought into it. And my initial preconception was wrong. And that was the thing that I I think probably turned me was that actually, yeah, you could do something very, very different. In the same way that we did with our uh, hybrid system when we first went to Le Mans in 2011 with that, when no one else was doing it, you can do it as a racing series as well. Coming back to your point, how far ahead do you look? You know, three years in advance of uh, the e-tron being launched on the market we were already preparing for it in racing and so in that respect um it was it was definitely in my view at the beginning a question mark but at the end an absolute definite thing that we must get involved in
1: do you uh you because you, you you drive an e-tron as well don't you how could i not <laughs> i'm the team principal <laughs> of the farm V electric team of course
0: and the other thing is that you know i'm a I'm the son of a car dealer. And uh, so from that perspective, the car industry has been my life all the way through from zero. I remember going and uh, sitting through in the workshop, learning how to a, a gearbox and a differential works from Jim Morton, who was our, uh, our master technician at the time. And so therefore the whole car industry has been something that I've followed intrinsically all the way through. And uh, ultimately, once you uh, sat in the e-tron, um, for the first time, which was actually in in America, uh, when the the media launch was on, then you realised that straight away this is going to be a huge part of the future and something that uh, it certainly, from a driving point of view, brings so many different things to to a driving pleasure.
1: I mean, electric cars, EVs, we're still kind of at the beginning of that, much as as Formula E mm. is. You know, that Formula E it's not one of those series that's that's steeped in in tradition. At the moment we're still kind of no. semi at, at its infancy. But that means the there are elements of tech that you can push forward that the series itself is pushing forward. How do you work with your team and your engineers to develop that tech? And then how is that fed back to, to the rest of Formula E as, as an organization?
0: Okay, if you think of it, um Audi's involved in racing for a few reasons, Alex. One of them clearly is development of technology. And uh, the Vorsprung Dirt tagline, I think, says it all. You know, that's, whether that was in rallying in the 80s, whether it was in the touring car programs that came to the UK with Frankie Beeler in uh, the 90s or all of our Le programme with the TFSI direct injection the laser lights that were on the R8 where well, us old guys needed a little bit of help going down the Mulsanne Strait we needed better lights or whether it be uh, you know with uh, what we're doing now with Formula E it's about being developing technology before it came to the road and there's no better place in my true belief to prove it than actually on a racing circuit or in a racing environment competition pushes you to the limit and it makes you think about new solutions, especially when regulations are quite restricted. It makes you think very laterally.
1: Um, I want to give you a moment to, to blow your own trumpet and sing the praises for you and your team, because you've had some mega success. Talk us through it.
0: Through the course of uh, the six seasons up till now, uh, we've had fantastic success winning the first ever race in Beijing, which uh, was actually with Lucas de Um, It was a very, very defining moment, one that at the time, I don't think they realised, but looking back on it was a very defining moment. And uh, then from there, coming through with uh, more podiums than any other team, Lucas has got more points than any other driver. And so, you know, we've had a fantastic success of wins, of championships, drivers and teams titles. But Alex, you know... We blow our trumpet and that's fantastic. But five minutes later, you know, the competition's coming at you. So therefore you've got to react and you've always got to be one step ahead. And so we are very, very proud of the successes and the trophies that we've had. In fact, I was just looking through uh, some pictures and uh, there was a beautiful one where we won in Berlin in season four. And it probably was one of my favourite personal victories because it was not just a victory, it was a one-two it was a one-two from pole position with leading every single lap and also a fastest lap as well. And it was the complete sweep and the first time anyone has ever had that sweep of points, uh, first and second for the team with everything from start to finish. That made me very, very proud. We're going to try and make sure we have more of these in, in the coming season as well.
1: So you've, over, over your career, you're immensely packed, three years. You've stood on top steps a lot you are a, an amazingly, amazingly successful human being. What's the, the, the physical and mental experience like? Because when you're up on the top step, you've earned it. But to get there, what preparation goes into that? Because I can't get my tiny brain around it.
0: I'm very fortunate that, as you say, I've uh, been in the top step many, many times. Big championships, uh, Le Mans, World Championships, that sort of thing. You know,
1: just a few, just a few.
0: Alex, I think we also have to remember, like in any sport... Those are the highlights that people remember, but what they tend to forget is the sort of hard work and effort that's gone into it before, as you say. But also the races where you have not finished on that top step, the races that got away from you, the races that you thought were going to be yours, but for whatever reason didn't. And they're, in my opinion, as much as part of the future success as what actually the trophies are. Because those are the ones where you dig deep, you go home, you think about it, you, you look at it, and you prepare better than you did the last time. The ones that got away, I think, are as defining as the victories in a lot of respects.
1: I suppose the, the thing is, everyone sees the final show and goes, wow, but very few people realise the level of rehearsal and level of prep that, that goes into it.
0: Yeah, that's it. But, it, you know, my father taught me when I was karting, when I was a little kid, the, the five Ps, proper preparation prevents poor performance. And that stuck with me massively. And it's something that I think we... It's too easy to forget, especially in the the modern era of technology, it's too easy to forget that we are human beings. It's too easy to forget that, actually, we do make mistakes. But ultimately, if we prepare scenarios in advance, then it gives us more chance of reacting positively to when things come up. Because you do know for a fact things are going to come up. Things are going to happen that you don't expect. But you've got to be able to react in the right way quickly and clearly to be able to get it back onto track as quickly as possible. That's as a driver, you know, when you do a qualifying lap and you lock a brake or you run wide and you've got to catch the oversteer moment or whatever it is. And it's the same as a team when something out of the ordinary comes along and sort of hits you like a rainstorm just, you know, 30 seconds before the start of the race and you've got to react quicker than everybody else. And that reaction is part of the things that sets good teams, I would say, apart from the others.
1: We we have you here, so I can't not ask about Le Mans. You've done some incredible things there. What I'd like to know, though, is we're talking about preparation for Formula E. How is the preparation different between the two? And also for for the drivers, because you're prepping to do 24 hours in a prototype. These are shorter races in more established tech. So what's what's the difference? How do the two compare?
0: They're very, very different. It's a bit like tennis and squash. In some respects, they've, you know, both got a steering wheel, uh, two pedals and, uh, you know, four wheels on the car. Certainly at the beginning of the race, four wheels on the car. Sometimes at the end of the race, a few less. But, uh, you know, the the principles are exactly the same. However, uh, the, the detail is different. Certainly from a driver's point of view, at Le Mans, you are in the car for, you know, two Grand Prix distances at once. And you'll do nearly three quarters of a Formula One season by the time the race finishes, all in a day. And so therefore, from a mental point of view, from a physical, but mostly from an emotional point of view, it's a roller coaster like you would never believe. And you develop a car to be able to achieve it, but you also develop a team and drivers to do it. And so therefore, we do 30-hour testing periods where we'll go to a circuit, usually Paul Ricard in the south of France, And you'll do the setup on the car, make sure it's right for the conditions of the day. And then at a time, say nine o'clock in the morning, you start your 30 hour test and you will not stop until those 30 hours are up. And that is if you have a problem, you fix it as if it was in the middle of the race. If the turbocharger fails, you change that turbo as if it was in the middle of the race and you just keep on working at it. Now, that's super tough because you're basically chasing no one because there's it's you on the circuit on your own, whether it be three o'clock in the afternoon or three o'clock in the morning. But to have that baseline, like muscle memory, if you like, is super, super important in my view for Le Mans. In Formula E, the race is forty-five minutes long, and so in that respect, you know, a complete Formula E racing season is a, is less than a stint of Le Mans in a way. Um, however, it's super, super intense because. Everything is between these walls. So if you think of driving through the Monaco Tunnel absolutely flat out all the time for 45 minutes with 23 other people just rushing around over the top of you trying to beat you, it is massively, massively intense at the same time as you're trying to balance the speed and the energy use as well. And so therefore it's a slightly different skill set, but... I have to say, a driver that's very good at Le Mans, I'm sure, can be very good in Formula e, and vice versa.
1: You're talking about um, the, how how people are, are, are adaptable to everyday, and how the tech filters down to everyday. One huge element of racing is safety huge, huge element of it. And I want to I want to ask you about 2011. Uh, I was watching Le Mans. You so had, was I. Uh, say yes, <laughs> but you had a different perspective to me. The the crash you had it was just it was unbelievable from the outside. Can you talk us through it? Because I remember you clambering out of the car and thinking, how, how did, what? Uh, Like, it was, it was, it was intense. Can can you talk us through it?
0: Yeah, that's, you know, safety has been pushed through motorsport for a long period of time, whether it be safety belts and the introduction of those which were in racing cars before they ever went into, uh, into road cars or wipers even, which were developed at Le Mans, funnily enough. So you talked about 2011 there. 2011, we uh, were in Le Mans for the first time with uh, the closed cockpit cars, and that was a new regulation, and I uh, was actually just overtook Timo Bernard, who was my teammate in the sister car, for the lead of the race coming down through the S's, uh, because Timo had made a mistake at the Dunlop chicane and ran wide onto the Astrodurse, so couldn't accelerate, and so I ran around the outside of him, and then as we float into the right hander, something hit the left-hand side of the car, and I... Around and went backwards into the wall. And I remember going backwards and it was silent because the car was actually in the air. And then, you know, there's a few sort of little bits of memory uh, until I woke up in the hospital. You know, I was fully conscious and awake in the hospital. But from the moment of the touch with the Ferrari, which I didn't see because of uh, the A pillars and the wheel arch heights. And uh, he didn't see me because his wing mirror was actually behind his field of vision. Then it was two cars don't go into one. That is a simple fact. It never has done, never will do. And in this occasion, neither of us saw each other. And so it was a huge accident. The very fortunate thing is I basically had a small concussion from what I think we went into the barrier about 160 miles per hour backwards. So it it was a fair energy I was able to step out of the car. I had no bruises or broken bones or anything at all. It was just, you know, a light concussion in that respect. I went back later on after uh, I'd been discharged from the checks in the hospital and uh, went to see Axel Luffler. And Axel is our chief designer. And Axel was the guy that uh, took the regulations and the safety requirements of the regulations and actually went one step further because he believed that uh, he needed to do that. And I gave Axel a big kiss on the forehead. And, you know, he's a burly German chappy. And, you know, to see this little Scottish guy coming up to give him a kiss on the forehead, I don't think he was quite expecting it. But at the end of the day, his focus to actually make sure the car was safer and to keep me protected in that situation um, was the reason that I'm here still talking to you. And so in that respect, you know, I don't just owe many race victories to Axel and his team. I actually owe my safety to Axel and his team as well.
1: So what, what was it about the, the car that protects you? you? You said it went above and beyond. Like, what was that above and beyond?
0: Well, it was effectively you've got um, various tests where you've got impacts coming from different angles. And these are statutory tests, like, like NCAP in terms of uh, road cars. And uh, so therefore the car effectively you take to a testing centre and it gets destroyed through these tests, and it has to pass. However, um, in terms of structural points, then Axel, from his team's point of view, went to make sure that we had the lightness of the car, which is performance and speed, but we had extra torsional stiffness, and which gives also performance. But that wasn't at the detriment of the strength of the car and an impact in a crash. And that was proven with my accident very, very clearly, but also. Unfortunately for us as Audi, but uh, fortunately for Mike Rockefeller in the other car, in the sister car, he had an accident in the middle of the night. Very, very similar situation. And uh, his was at 200 miles per hour. So therefore, you have to make sure that uh, the protection systems are in place to, to be able to help.
1: That's mind-blowing, but thank goodness, basically. Th- th- thank goodness these things exist. Um, Alan, we've talked about the past. We've talked about Le Mans and your history with it. We've talked about the present and Formula E and Audi's success there. But let's talk about the future. There's a new era for endurance racing coming up. Audi's entering this new sports prototype category at Dakar. So how how could you feel this will change motorsport? How How is this different and new for Audi?
0: Yeah, certainly, as we've said We're always trying to look ahead, where we need to be, uh, as opposed to where we are today. And uh, with that respect, then at the end of um, 2021, we'll switch focus from Formula E, because now Audi is an electric car manufacturer. When we started in Formula E, it hadn't produced one single electric car. Now you've got so many different models coming through that it is actually physically an electric car manufacturer. So what's the next step? And part of that next step is to push to the absolute limits. And so, therefore, we will have a directional change and uh, stepping into Dakar. Now, I remember Dakar as a kid and I remember seeing these, uh, the motorcycles and the buggies and the cars, you know, just across the desert and through some mountain regions and things. Now it is as extreme and difficult as possible. But to go there and try to win Dakar as the first manufacturer on pure electric drive that is going to be a challenge and that is a challenge right at the edge and so that's starting 2022 and uh, that i think is going to be a super super tough endurance event
1: i mean because dakar's quite you know it, it, it is an extreme environment the weather the terrain everything so how how much of a test is it going to be
0: it's going to be a super hard test. It's two weeks through through every sort of environment you can think of. You're doing uh, long, like 400-kilometer stages. Uh, The car will get absolutely beaten up like you cannot imagine, and it's got to be able to survive everything for that period of time. I was very fortunate that about, you maybe don't know this, but 15 years ago I drove uh, a test in... Actually, it was in Morocco at the time, in the dunes of Morocco, and it was an incredible thing to do because you can be driving along, you can be doing 100, 130 miles per hour, and then suddenly you're just taking off over the sand dunes or, you know, there's hedge or little bushes or something that you've just got to avoid or a rock because it's not like a rally stage where everybody follows each other. It's a bit more like orienteering where you've got point A and point B and you've got to get there faster than everybody else. And so in some respects, yes, they do follow each other, however, not on the exact route. And so there's a lot of reaction to whatever comes your way as well. But from an enjoyment perspective, from a driving point of view, it was just incredible. Really, really different, really tough to try to always be on top of your game, but really, really enjoyable. And from the team perspective as well, then, you know, they're building something that's got to deliver in performance, but to be super robust.
1: You talk about uh, jumping over sand dunes. What's that going to be like in an electric car? Because there's, there's, some, there's some differences.
0: Yeah, it's some differences, but there's actually some positives. Now, again, I'll come back. One thing you need in these conditions is torque. And one thing an electric vehicle has is instantaneous torque. So if you think of yourself, you're in the sand or you're in a rocky sort of mountain and you need to sort of get some movement forward, then you need four-wheel drive, you need quattro, and you need instantaneous torque. And with the electric motor, you've got that instantaneous torque to be able to just make sure that you get that initial acceleration and then the momentum from there. The other thing is that when you brake you don't necessarily have to press the brake pedal like you would do in a racing circuit because actually the sand builds up in front of the tires as well in front. And so therefore you get a braking effect effectively by braking into the sand dunes. And so you have that, but as well at that same time, we can recuperate some energy. And so therefore there's quite a lot of technical uh, solutions that we can bring to bear with the electric drive.
1: Who who are who are the drivers that are coming into this now? Have they gone out and thought right? I want to race in an electrified vehicles. I want to go to Dakar and jump over sand dunes in an e-tron. Racing
0: people are very much looking to future. I always did. I always looked for the next development. What was going to make me go faster? What was going to make the car better or whatever it may be? Didn't matter in some respects, uh, whether it was a tyre or whether it was a front wing device or whether it was a new engine concept. And so therefore, uh, you know, when you're building a team, you've got to build with the experience you have from your technologies, but also the experience of the event as well. And I don't think that changes whether it be Le Mans or whether it be Dakar or whether it be any other category.
1: Now you're running the team rather than racing, you presumably... Don't have to keep yourself in quite as good shape. You, is that just a massive weight off your shoulders?
0: Off my shoulders, or weight going on somewhere else? What are you yeah. talking about here, Alex? <laughs> <laughs> is
1: is 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 it nice to not have to be like peak performance all the time? Because that is one thing, yeah. one part of most sport that a lot of people don't realise is you have to be a hundred percent on it all the time. Yeah, I think
0: when I retired, I was very fortunate actually, when I, because from the age of sixteen, I didn't put on weight until. I retired at all. Didn't matter what I did, whether I trained or not trained, ate or didn't eat or it was, I was always 60 kilos.
1: You are an amazingly lucky man. And I hate you a little bit. For
0: that. <laughs> However, times have changed. My father told me they were going to change, but times have changed. Now, when I retired, definitely, there is definitely a release of pressure. And that isn't pressure put on by anybody else. It's, certainly for me, it was pressure put on by myself. Because you have to perform at an absolute elite level. When you're in a car, there's no second best. You have to perform at top. In football, you can maybe get support from your teammates to pull you through on a day. But in in motorsport, you're the one in the car. There's no one else. So therefore, you have to do it. And that brings, to some extent, its pressure. And uh, the pressure to, to win was the thing for me. And so when I retired, when I decide, decided to retire, then I came home, told my wife, that was it, it was over. Went to Audi's, spoke to Dr Ulrich, who was a motorsport boss, and said, look, that's that's it, finished. Uh, and I came home and there was, a, there was definitely an emotional release. I wouldn't say that it changed my training habits and things because I'd been running and you know, going to the gym and doing different things for oh, 25 years. But the one thing I stopped immediately was I never did any more neck exercises. I, they drove me nuts. You were sitting on a bench with an elastic band around your head tied to it and doing 45 minutes of neck exercises. was just mind-numbingly boring. And so they went straight out of the window as soon as, as, soon as I stopped. But everything else kind of, um, I would say, kept going. Because it's a little bit like an adrenaline junkie. You just can't switch it off overnight. Or certainly I couldn't switch it off overnight. But uh, you replace it with something else. And so in some ways, now being team principal of the team, I've replaced all of that sort of energy and and adrenaline and focus that I had from the driver for myself uh, success in a way to now to the bigger part of the team. And so I kind of look through the visor, Before it was just for my own point of view, but now I look through the visor of uh, Lucas and Rennie in Formula E and uh, I kind of live it with them. So, you know, as much as I've stepped away from the cockpit and taken the helmet off, I still kind of, when I do watch the onboards, I'm living it with them thinking, right, okay, break now, do this, do that, do the next thing. But they're ahead of the game for me, so it's okay.
1: So you say neck exercises went out of the window. Why? Why do you have to do neck exercises? What is the point of them?
0: Okay, I'll bring it back, Alex. When you're in a racing car, you're actually doing a heck of a lot of work. So I'll put it a different way. It's like doing a gentle jog for the time you're in the car, whether that be in Le Mans, up to three, three and a half hours, doing a gentle jog for that period. The force on your arms is about two kilos and so you know a bag of sugar in each arm and just turning a steering wheel with that bag of sugar in each arm for that period of time at the same time when you're going through corners uh, then it can be up to sort of three three and a half g so you know i'm 60 kilos or i was 60 kilos when i was racing (laughs) and so therefore i you know on my head with a helmet on is about eight kilos so my head with the helmet on suddenly becomes 24 kilos if I've got 3G of force, pushing laterally against my body. My lungs are actually being crushed to the side of my ribcage. So when you're going through corners, you don't breathe. You hold your breath to stabilize everything internally. Now, you don't think of that. That's just natural. But you're actually stabilizing your internal organs by holding your breath. And so all of this physical effort is pretty tough you can train your arms you can train your legs you know we do all that in the gym but i think the only two sports where really the neck gets a real rigorous going over is rugby um and also because of the scrum and everything else but also in motorsport but for a different way and so therefore we have to do a lot of neck exercises effectively to keep our heads up otherwise your head would just flop around like, a, you know, the dogs in the back of a car, in the back parcel shelf that sort of nod around. It'd be like one of those. And to do that, you have to try to train uh, the muscles on the side, on the front because of acceleration, because your head gets pushed back, under braking because your head gets pushed forward, and then going round left or right handers. And so it does take quite a lot of work to train a muscle that naturally is only designed to keep your head up.
1: Alan thank you so much for your time this morning it's been absolutely mega and genuinely fascinating it's been it's been really awesome thank you
0: Thank you very much Alex
1: A huge thank you to Alan McNish I'm always impressed when such incredibly successful people are so keen to share the lows as well as their mammoth highs it makes us mere mortals you know humans feel a little bit better about ourselves. Well, it does me anyway. As ever, I'll be back in a week's time with more tales from behind the rings. So that gives you plenty of time to subscribe to the podcast and write a delightful essay of a review. You've got no excuse because I like reading comments and judge myself on what you write. So do say hello and say nice things. Until next time, thanks for listening and goodbye.